The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? Try that again. What's up, church? You get extra points. You answered twice. Hey, uh, grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Luke this morning. I'm going to start something new. While you're doing that, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, wave your hand around in the air. We will make sure that you get one. A couple of announcements. Uh, women's retreat. We announced last week that last week was the deadline for signups. They've actually extended signups because of the amount of interest. So you can still sign up all the way up till the actual event itself. However, if you want food at the event, that deadline is today because they have to get the orders in. Um, so make sure you do that today if you're going to actually eat at the event. Otherwise, you can just, you know, run to Subway or something. Um, also, uh, pastor's coffee today, right after service. It's a great opportunity that we love to be able to, to get to meet you guys and, and talk with you about our church a little bit and introduce ourselves. So if you are new or new ish here at heritage, um, please join us in the coffee shop right after service. We would love to get to talk with you guys a little bit. Um, and I promise I will go super, super short. I know it's open. This is God's blessed day, right? It's NFL Sunday. Amen. So I will go short. I'm not preaching short, but I'll go short in the coffee, sir, coffee thing. Um, also, midweek services and Awanas start back up this week, this Wednesday night at 6.30. And the midweek Bible study series we'll be doing this fall is Live Like Jesus. And we'll be tackling a different aspect of Jesus' life each week and looking at how we live that out ourselves. So join us this Wednesday at 6.30 for that. Uh, last announcement, volunteer recruitment fair Sunday, no, Saturday, September the 23rd. If you are uh, interested in serving anywhere or want to hear about the different service opportunities that do exist at Heritage, we're going to have a fun time with you guys. We're going to have some food, play some games, hang out, and talk about the different areas where we have needs and opportunities for you to serve here at Heritage. So that will be on Saturday, September 23rd at 9 a.m. Uh, we do need you to sign up so that we can plan appropriately for that. Um, there's just there's a lot of stuff going on. Make sure you check that little bulletin flyer thing that you got when you came in. There's a lot of other things going on and want to make sure that you get that. But this morning, we're going to start our new series now in the book of Luke. So if you'll do me a favor in honor of the reading of God's word, let's stand on our feet and look at Luke chapter one together. Um, we're only going to read the first four verses today. And I know that makes some of you go, uh, uh, oh no, uh, Luke is long. Uh, we will still be in Luke when I die. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, but we're, we're, this is like an introduction today. So let's look at verses one through four of chapter one. Luke one says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the, concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pause now and bow before you and ask, Lord, that you would just bless us with your presence, that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that you would help us, Lord, to, to understand and, and see your word. Lord, some of us have looked at this text many times over the years. This is nothing new, so to speak, to us. But, but Lord, you might want to do new things in us through it. And so I pray, God, that you would do that, that you would be our teacher, that you would speak, that, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. 
Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you may be seated. Well, <clears throat> we're going to start Luke today. I'm hoping that we can do this in a year. Um, I know that people have taken on studies of the book of Luke that have taken two and three years. It's, it's the longest of the Gospels. Um, I'm hoping we can knock this one out in a year, um, but we'll see. We'll see what the Lord does and kind of how we go. Um, as has been said before, what's important is not how fast we get through the Bible, but that the Bible gets through us, so to speak. So we're going we're gonna to do what we need to do and try to work our way through this. I think it's going to be a great, great, great time. Um, it's going to be interesting. It's, it's fun for me, too. As some of you guys know, I've been attending Western Seminary, working on a master's degree there, and I'm finally allegedly going to finish that up in this, this year. This is my last year there finally. And this fall, I have the privilege of actually taking a class while we're doing this. started this week, um, taking a class on the theology of Luke and Acts under Daryl Bach, who is like, um, if you know him, which probably none of you do, um, he is like the preeminent, like he's, you might refer to him as a Luke slash Acts expert. That's what he's really given himself to studying. So it's going to be really fun for me to be studying that and then coming and teaching. I'm probably just going to copy all his notes and come in here and just go blah. So it should be easy for me, right? No, that's not the case. But um, I think it's going to be really good. But it's going to also be good for us because Luke is actually a pretty overlooked gospel. Um, it's the third of what's referred to as the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's the gospel of John. And the gospel of, of Luke is a little bit overlooked in a lot of different places. It's, it's not read in the same way. It gets divorced from the book of Acts often, and it shouldn't be. Um, I'm not sure if we'll go into Acts after that. We actually did Acts not that long ago, but we'll see what the, what the Spirit does, where he leads. But, but Luke and Acts are actually two parts of the same story as we're going to see here in just a little while. Um, and, and so it kind of gets detached in that way. But, but one, of the, one of the reasons that, that it's been said that, that Luke is not as popular, for example, as books like John and Mark, there, there's a few different reasons. Um, Mark used to be the one that was sort of the more overlooked years ago. It's the shortest. It doesn't have as much in it. It's almost like the Reader's Digest version of the gospel in length compared to the others. Um, and so a lot of people for years used to sort of overlook Mark in the gospels and then it was discovered that Mark is the earliest written one and that the writers of the other gospels had Mark in their hand as they were writing the other gospels. And suddenly it got really important. It was like, oh man, this is like a, a backbone for a lot of the other things that are going on. We, we really should pay some attention to that. So suddenly Mark became really important. Matthew kind of always has been, it's, it's the first one. John is loved by everyone. I mean, who doesn't love the book of John, right? Um, but there's something, there's an advantage to the book of Luke uh, over the book of John, especially for people like us in our context right now. And it's this, John is, it's been referred to that John is written from heaven down. And what I mean by that is when you open the book of John, it begins right out of the gate. In the beginning was the word and it just declares Jesus is God and King and Lord of all. It just tells us everything we need to know about who Jesus is. And then it tells sort of the stories. And so it gets referred to as from heaven down. This is who it is. Now let me tell you what happened in his life. Luke is written in the opposite of that. Luke is written, it's been referred to as from the earth up. And what I mean by that is a lot of the, the, the deity, 
the, 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 the fact that Jesus is God and man, but more importantly, that he's king and that he's Lord, it gets sort of revealed gradually in the book of Luke. There's a declaration here. There's an announcement by the angel here. There's this that happened, and there's this that happened. And the whole time, Luke is taking these things that happened and tying them into prophecies and things that were expected by people um, all the way through the Old Testament. But it kind of gets revealed a little slower and a little more gradual than, say, the Gospel of John. And that's an advantage, and it's kind of important. And the reason is is because that's how people get saved. People get saved, you might say, from the earth up. And what, what I mean by that is they learn about Jesus— And they learn some things about Jesus. And they hear some stories about Jesus. And maybe they meet people who follow Jesus. And they learn other things about Jesus. And over time, as the Spirit works in their heart and reveals who he is to them, they go from learning about some man named Jesus to he is the God, the King, the Lord of all. And that's really kind of the way Luke is written. And that's important for us as believers in this current context today to be able to talk about Jesus with that regard. We need to be able to talk to people that don't know who God is. Uh, There's very few people today that deny that Jesus exists. There's very few people today that existed, I should say. Most people will not argue that, but they will definitely argue who he is. We need to be able to take people from, he's a good teacher, um, he's a historical figure, He had some wise things to say and take them from that to Lord, King, Savior. And Luke is really kind of written in that way. Um, Luke has some other themes that are are really advantageous and important for us to understand. If you could summarize the overall theme of the book of Luke, Luke is about legitimization. Legitimization. And this is what this means. Luke is legitimizing the early church as part of the old story, or maybe better said, the overall and continuing work of God all the way even back through the Old Testament. Now, that's important, and here's why. Um, In our day and age right now, we love new, don't we? Like, we love new. We love new. I just found out, I didn't know this, I literally found it out between these two services, and I can't tell you how giddy I am, that because my cell phone, an iPhone, is a Verizon phone, I have just realized I get every single NFL football game streamed through my phone for free. Any Verizon fans in here? Amen, right? That's amazing. I can't wait to see if it streams through Apple TV. If you don't have Apple TV, that's new. That's amazing. We love that kind of stuff. Unless you have to kind of stake your life on it. Then we like old. And if you don't know what I mean, no one wants to be the first surgery patient for a doctor. (laughs) Right? No one wants that. You ever been in a setting like where the doctor comes in and somebody's getting ready for surgery? The doctor comes in, it's the first time the person's seen him and he looks like he graduated yesterday. And then they walk out and people are like, I'll hear these comments. I'm doing hospital visits stuff. I hear it all the time. They're like, man, he looks like he's just right out of high school. Like no one wants that, no matter how minor the surgery might be. Welcome, sir. I'm here for your vasectomy. Let me see what YouTube has about that. Like no one wants that. I don't care if it's a tooth being pulled. We like old, dependable, true, trustworthy, because they've been there before. We understand it. We can bank on it. We can know this. Well, in the ancient cultures there, old was favored, especially in things like this. No one wanted the new thing. They wanted tried and true, tested, reliable. 
And so, so much of what Luke is doing, as you're going to see today, is we're tying what's happening here in this new movement that goes on into the book of Acts, the new, the church, if you will. And he's saying it's not a new movement. This is the continuing act of God that started all the way back in Genesis. This is what the Jewish people have been waiting for. This is what the world has been waiting for all along. And so he's legitimizing the creation of the church as the outworking and the eventual, um, this is part of God's plan all along. He's making it, if you will, old. This is the long running story of God. It's not some new thing. So he's going to present that. Now, this morning, we're only covering the first four verses, as I said, and as, if you've been around for a while, you know that when we come and begin a brand new book, whenever we open up a new book and start a new study, we always spend a significant amount of time um, that the first teaching's always a little different than the rest of them. And the reason is we want to spend a little bit of time talking about the culture and the context and the things that are going on. So here at Heritage, we have a specific way that we address the scriptures when we're trying to uh, interpret scripture. It's referred to as the historical grammatical interpretation method. And what it means is, as we open this book, we realize that these stories happened in a real place, at a real time, with real people. It was written by real people, um, and that God used these things to tell that story. And so therefore, when we go and study these scriptures, when we go to study these stories, we want to know everything we can about that place and those people. And then we want to pull our application and how that affects us out of that. Because if we come up with an idea or an interpretation of a passage that didn't make any sense to the original person that read it, we probably did it wrong. Because God's not some like magic eight ball where you have to figure out his will. Like he's speaking through real people in real time. So we want to understand that. And that's not just a, a biblical thing. Like understanding context is really, really important. Let me prove it to you. I have a sentence that I want to put up here. Check this sentence out. Look at it with me, would you? The Seahawks are going to the frozen tundra to melt the cheese heads. What am I talking about here? Football, not just football or football, but American, Ugh, America, football, right? That's what we're talking about. Now, m almost all of you know what this means. When I read this sentence, what's happening? The Seattle Seahawks football team is going to the frozen tundra, also known as Lambeau Field, where the Green Bay Packers play, to, are they going to melt? No, they're not going to melt, but it's to be, it's a sports term, we get it, to melt the cheese heads. The cheese heads are the Green Bay Packers. We know what that means. But if you took that sentence and an English-Chinese dictionary, and you went to China, and you found someone that does not speak English, has never lived in America, you gave them that sentence and an English-Chinese translation dictionary, it would be literally impossible for them to get an accurate translation of this text. They might be able to translate, well, Seahawk, it's a type of bird. They'll be able to get, oh, frozen means it's like it was cold, frozen. They'll know what tundra means. They can translate that. They can talk about melt and cheese heads, but they're going to read that sentence, and they're going to go, I have no clue what you're talking Apparently, birds are going to fly to frozen places and melt cheese, I think is what they're going to do. And that's not at all what we're talking about. Why do we know that that's what we're talking? Why do we know that that's about American football? Because we live in a cultural context where this makes sense. But divorced from that culture, divorced from that context, it becomes impossible 
for you to get an accurate translation and understanding about what the intent of that sentence. What was that sentence trying to relay? You would have no chance at getting that right if you're divorced from that context. Let me show you a way that maybe if we can flip the arrangement around, let me show you a different one. We're sentence number two. Ian Botham marched to the crease to defend the ashes for his majesty. Now, if you know what that is, I'm surprised because I had to look some of this stuff up. Anybody know what that is? Kind of sounds like war a little bit, right? Marching and majesty and ashes and crease. It's a sports term. It's cricket, which Americans would refer to as weird baseball. Right? It's cricket. So think about this now. This is in the right language. Okay? In the context that this sentence belongs to, that's exactly the way they would read it, and it's right. Same language. Two different contexts. And what do we mean? Well, this is what it's saying. Ian Botham is a cricket star. March to the crease. The crease is, if you will, the batter's box in a cricket game. To defend the ashes. The ashes is the battlefield or the competition, the name for it, between England and Australia specifically. It's a specific match, specific battles for his majesty, which is what they would refer to the British team as they go to play against Australia. It's a cricket term. But if you're not in that context... If you're divorced from those things, even if you know the language, even if you know the meaning of the actual words, when you put those things together apart from the context in which they took place, it means nothing to us. We have no idea what they're even talking about. And this has been part of biblical translation issues for a long, long time. So you'll hear us talk, especially in this series, you'll hear us talk about Jesus and the kingdom of God, that he's the king. We're part of his kingdom, that we are outposts, if you will, of this kingdom. The kingdom has been inaugurated, and one day when Christ returns, it'll be consummated. But for right now, we live as ambassadors of that kingdom, and Jesus is our king. There are actually people that disagree with that interpretation. And they would say, it's inaccurate to refer to Jesus as king and to talk about that kingdom. That isn't here yet. It hasn't happened yet. And you can't do it because nowhere in the New Testament do the New Testament writers refer to Jesus Christ as king. That's almost true, except not at all. And here's why. The Bible doesn't say in the New Testament writings, the epistle letters, that Jesus is king. It doesn't say, I should be specific, that Jesus Christ is king. But do you know this? Maybe you don't know this. Christ is not his last name. Did you know that? His first name is Jesus, but if he had a driver's license, it's not going to say Jesus Christ. It says Jesus. Christ is a title. Do you know what Christ means? Anointed one. In the Jewish culture and where these things were written, who is the anointed one? It's the king. The New Testament actually says Jesus is king Over and over and over and over. But because maybe you don't understand that particular context, you're looking for specific words that aren't there, and then you can make assumptions that actually aren't true. So context matters. It's important that we understand. The early church knew the context. We have to do a little legwork sometimes to make sure that we do. And we should because it's available to us, especially in our day and age. So that's what we want to do. Now, 
context and that setting for the book of Luke will be handled a little differently than we have for all the other series that we've been through. Because when we're studying Philippians, it's a fixed time, a fixed period of time, a fixed place, a fixed people. So we can start that series, lay all that history and context out right then, and then we're drawing on that the rest of the time as we go through. Luke's a little bit different. It's a little harder because it covers a significant period of time from the birth of Christ to the death of Christ to the ascension. Like it's a, it's a big chunk of time and it covers lots of different people. He's in this place. He's in this city. He's with these people. He's with people of this background. So that changes. So we'll be drawing on the history of some of those things as we go through the different narratives and through the different stories along the way. Um, but there are some things fun, uh, fundamentally that we can lay out that'll help us with our understanding of the book of Luke moving forward. For example, the first thing is, is we know some things about the author. Number one, his name is Luke. That's his name. The author of the book of Luke is Luke. And we know some things about Luke. For example, we know this. Luke is not a evangelist, or at least in originally, not an evangelist, not a church planner, not a rabbi. He's not even Jewish. He's a Gentile. Luke has a job and a profession. Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. We know this because Colossians 4.14 refers to him as the beloved physician. That's what he was. That's what he began working as, as a doctor. So he's an educated man. He's a professional man. He has a job. We know that about Luke. The second thing that we know about Luke is that he traveled with Paul. So Luke, as I said, wrote the book of Luke as part one of a letter or a historical account. It's really a historical biography. And then part two is the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, as you're reading through it, what you start to see in the book of Acts is we went here, we went there, we did this, this happened to us. He's writing a lot of these events after the conversion of Paul firsthand. So he is literally traveling along with Paul. Paul will refer to him in epistle writings about how Luke is with me at different times or only Luke stayed with me, which leads us to the next thing. Luke is loyal. Because Timothy actually tells us in 2 Timothy that as persecution came and people were even dying, everyone left Paul, but Luke stayed. Luke stuck it out. He stayed with Paul. And because of that, we know something else about Luke. Paul loved Luke. When he refers to Luke throughout the epistles, he refers to him as his beloved. He loves Luke. And who wouldn't when everyone bails you and this guy's sticking it out right there? He desperately loved Luke. But we know something else about Luke. Luke is a really good historian. He's a really good historian. So as you're going to see, there's other writings about the gospel and the stories of Jesus Christ that had already been put together at the time. In particular, Luke had access to the book of Mark at the time. In fact, over 60% of the book of Mark is quoted in Luke or specifically and explicitly referred to. And it's always accurate. He always gets it right. He does not throw in contradictions or anything like that. So he gets his history really well done as he goes through those things. But not only that, um, historians, both secular and religious to this day, as they go back and look at his writings, they say that every time Luke talks about a culture or historical figures, kings, leaders, rulers, whoever it may be during that period of time, he always gets it right. That he got the practices, the customs, the traditions, the, the known government leaders, all of those things, Luke nails it every time. Which, sidebar real quick, um, 
there's something in us that when we see, there, there was a news story that just came out recently about a city that's mentioned in the Bible, but no one's ever found that city. And so critics always point to that city as an error in the Bible. And then, oh, what do you know? Modern day archeologists have found that city and it confirms the Bible. And when that kind of stuff happens, we're like, yeah. Christians, I mean, like, yeah, prove this right. Kinda, what it, what it really does is prove the historians right. You know that, right? Because the Bible is the ev- everlasting, never-ending, reliable truth of God. And, and yeah, we understand what that means when someone proves that or when history proves that. But in reality, it just proves that the scientists actually did their homework right in that case, right? But that's what the case here. So historians, even secular, say, no, Luke kind of gets it right when he writes all these things. All the history, all the stuff he's taking into account, he did a really good job with that. He's a dependable, um, reliable historian. We also know something about the person to whom Luke is writing. His name is Theophilus. We see it in the introduction. It's a Greek name, and it means beloved by God. But that would be God little g, as you know about the culture, the Roman culture there. They're pantheistic. There's gods everywhere. There's the God of this, the God of this, the God of that. So that's what they're talking about there. It was a somewhat common name at the time, Theophilus. But Luke's reference to him in the text as most excellent Theophilus sets him apart in a specific way. Because Luke only uses that term. He uses it also in the book of Acts 2 other times when speaking about really high-ranking, really high-level government officials, people in positions that you would say are positions of honor. We're going to see those other two here in just a little while. So it's believed that this man, Theophilus, is is a leader, a government leader, um, an official of some degree. Somewhere along the line, he's hearing these stories about Jesus. He's learning things. And he's learning about all this stuff's going on and, and the church is being planted and all this stuff's happening and he meets this doctor, this guy named Luke, and actually Luke ends up being the one who compiles for him an account of all of these things that have taken place. Um, maybe he's a skeptic, maybe he's just curious, but Luke ends up being the one who's presenting to this man, Theophilus, the most detailed and longest record of Jesus Christ's life of any of the other gospel accounts. And we're really blessed to have it. It's going to be a phenomenal study as we go through this. Now, as I said before, the book of Mark had already been written at the time, as well as some other things. Verse 1 tells us, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So there's other writings out there at the time. He's got access to other things that tell some of these stories. But that's not enough for him. Look at verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now think about this. Jesus died, depending on which historian and which timeline you believe, somewhere between 33 and 36 uh, AD. Somewhere in there, depending on which historian you believe, that's where Jesus died. Well, everyone seems to believe that the book of Luke was written really close to, if not right around AD 60. So we're less than 30 years here in this window here. And people who were alive during the time of Jesus, during the things that took place in Jesus's life that he's going to write about in the book of Luke are still alive now as he writes this. In fact, it's not just that they were alive. There were actual eyewitnesses of these events. So what Luke is doing, as any good historian would do, is not just pulling from the other writings that were there, but he's talking to actual people. He's connected with real people. There were eyewitnesses of all of these sorts of things. He's a guy who said, well, I've heard this story and I've heard this. 
wait, Jesus ascended into the cloud? I, I need to talk to somebody about that. Like he's doing his research. He's doing his homework in all of these things. And he's doing it really, really well. In fact, many people actually believe that Luke was a skeptic when he started. That the, he was hired maybe to, to compile some of this stuff and over time became a committed follower of Christ. That may be true. No question, he became a very committed follower of Christ. How do we know? Because when people start dying, he stays. And so he's compiling these things, but he's writing to Theophilus with a really specific purpose. There's really something specific that he's trying to do. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Oh, he had all the other things, but it wasn't enough. He wanted more. He felt there were things he had, whether it be the spirit that was prompting him at the time or whether the Lord used other questions that he had, there was more to do. And so he begins to write, but he's not writing without a purpose. He's not compiling this history without a reason. The reason and purpose behind what he's doing is what he's writing is verse four, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The, the word there for certainty in the Greek is asphalion. And asphalion is used in a few different places in the New Testament, and it's used in a ton of places in the Greek Septuagint, which is, which is the Greek interpretation of the Old Testament. It's a very important document. Um, and, and in every one of those cases, it's actually translated a little bit more this way. It doesn't just mean certainty, though it does, but attached to that word is another word that's really important. It means security. It means security. Certainty and security in the same place. And what he means is, is I'm writing you, most excellent Theophilus, I am writing you that you may have certainty, that you may be secure in the locked down, in the stand up, in the tested, in the absolute truth and certainty of everything that I'm about to write. That you don't just have certainty to know that this is true and that it happened, but that you have security in those things and in the belief and understanding that those things happened. And there's a real, real emphasis here. Because think about this now, church. Theophilus has been taught some stuff. He says it in verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So he's heard these stories. He's heard some of this stuff. He's been taught things about Jesus. He knows things about Jesus. But how does he know them? How do the things that he know about Jesus affect him? We were actually at a conference one year in, uh, is it Chicago or Orlando? I can't remember which one. It was one of the Gospel Coalition conferences. And John Piper was teaching um, in the first two chapters. He was going through the birth of Christ. And he stopped for a minute to mention this. And I remember what he said. He, he said, most excellent Theophilus, I'm writing you, he's talking as Luke, I'm writing you that you may have certainty in these things that you know. You know them, but I want you to know them differently. And, and this is how John Piper put it. He said, do you know them like a cloud or do you know them like a mountain? 
Do you know them like a cloud? Like you can kind of see it, but you can't kind of sort of touch it. Um, it's sort of there. It's a, it's a vague theology that we have, and we know this, but, but it's ready to just be blown out and blown away at the first resistance that comes that way. There's nothing tangible that you can sink your teeth into. There's nothing real that you're certainly not going to build your life and bet your life on this. Or do you know it like a mountain, like an immovable force? that has been here since the beginning, that will be here long after you. Something that you can build your life on. Something that you have to face. Oh, you can go around it if you want, but it's not moving. And long after you're gone, it's still going to be here. Do you know it like that? Or do you know it kind of sort of like a cloud? Because Theophilus heritage, Luke desires better than that for us. This, well, we, we know it. We kind of know it. I mean, be honest with yourselves for just a minute. You know these stories, most of you. If you don't, if this is all going to be new for you, I'm so excited for you. You're going to love this book. It's the greatest story ever told. And it's true and it's real. And you can know it right now out of the gate like a mountain. But many of us, we've learned these things for years. I mean, every Christmas we're in Luke 2, right? I was even struggling with when we should start this series. I was like, well, we're going to end up talking about the birth of Christ. Then Christmas is going to come and we're going to talk about the birth of Christ. And I was just like, oh, well, that's what God had planned. Let's do it. We know these stories. You know what's going to happen in the end. I can't spoil the ending for you. You know these things. But how do you know them? Is it a cloud? I know it. It's there. It's an idea. It's philosophy. Or is it a mountain? Is it, I would stake my life on this. If people are dying around me, like Luke, I'll, I'll stand. Because this mountain's not going away. And I may come and go, and Theophilus may come and go, and all these other guys will come and go, but this mountain's not going anywhere. That's what he wants for us. And church, you may have heard these stories over and over and over for so many years and you may know them. And you may be right now like, Jeff, I get it. I know, I know. Just let's go ahead. Let's start talking about Jesus. I know. But how do you know this? Because there's different types of knowledge and the way that you know things can actually be really, really dangerous. Let me give you an example. If you'd like to turn there, let's look at something else Luke wrote. Look at Acts chapter 24 for a moment. If you turn right, Acts 24, Paul's preaching and he's in trouble again, which is nothing new. Luke's with him. As you guys know, they would go to different places. They would preach about the kingdom of God. They would talk about all these things as being absolutely true. And then Paul would get in trouble. The powers that be are being pushed. Paul gets arrested. Sometimes he, he's set free. Sometimes they beat him and set him free. Sometimes they stone him thinking he's dead and he actually is still alive. Sometimes the prison just falls down and Paul gets to walk out. Depends on what it is. But this is, we're near the end now. And Paul's in front of these leaders. He's in front of these governors. He's being tried because of the effect that he has and the threat that he is, not just to the Roman powers that be, but to the Jewish people that have their power and their interest that they've been holding on to for a really, really, really long time. And so he's on prison. He's in prison and he's on trial. And in Acts chapter 24, Paul is in Caesarea and he comes before a man named Felix. Not just Felix, but in verse chapter 2, it tells us he's in front of most excellent Felix. Another most excellent, just like Theophilus. 
Paul goes on trial before this guy. And what is it that Paul begins to do as he begins to speak and tell the testimony of all this stuff? Look at verse 14. But this I confess to you that according to the way, that was Christianity before we called it Christianity. So before the way, according to the way, which they call a sect or a cult, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. What's he doing? These people are going, what is this new cult here? What is this new thing that's rising up? And it's a threat to our authority. It's a threat to our belief system. This new cult has come up. We need to deal with it. And Paul's going, no, 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 it's not new. This is old. I I worship the God of our fathers. This is the outworkings of God. This is what God's been doing all along. And he's trying to open their eyes to see that what's new is not new at all. It's what's always been in process. And so he's preaching these things to them, just like Luke's trying to do. And he works through these things. And then look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he knows about Jesus and he knows rightly. He knows facts. He knows about Christianity. He knows about all these things. He even knows about some of the history of the church. He knows the facts. He's been taught them and he knows them and he knows them rightly. But what does he do with that knowledge? He put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he starts trying to play both sides of the fence. I'm going to keep him in prison. That's what the people around here want. It's what the Jews want. And really, he's a threat to me. I don't really know for sure. So I'm going to keep him in prison, but I'm going to give him some freedom. I'm going to support him a little bit too. We're going to care for him and feed him and let his friends come. He's playing both sides of the aisle here with it. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, verse 24, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ and Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Oh, Paul, you blew it. Don't you know if you want people to come to Jesus, you can't talk about judgment and you can't talk about self-control and you can't tell them what to do. Paul, oh, you dummy. You just talk about love and hope and flowery things. Paul, what's wrong with you? No, he's speaking the truth. And he's preaching, but when the knowledge that Felix has begins to rub up against the desires that Felix actually has in his heart, there's a problem. So now what's he going to do with that knowledge? Does he know it like a cloud? Does he know it like something that, oh, I can just put it away for now? Or does he know it like an immovable mountain that is worth building your life on? Well, what does he do? Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was seceded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. He knew rightly. He knew the stories. He knew the facts. But he knew him like a cloud. I know they're there. I can see them, but there's nothing tangible to it for me. And when resistance comes, because the Jews want him to stay in jail, if I let him go, they're going to be upset. Or when it starts to talk about things like self-control or judgment or affecting the way I have to live my life now based on this stuff. Whoa, I'll, I'll put you away for a little while. I'll call you if I need you. 
I'll use it when it helps. There's a curiosity to it, but I'm not going to build my life on this. Are you kidding me? No. And in the end, what did he have? Nothing. He leaves him in jail. There's a type of knowledge that is destructive to the church. There's a type of knowledge that is destructive to the Christian. There's a type of knowledge that can give us comfort thinking, hey, I'm playing both sides of the fence. I got it all covered. I got my church life over here. And I got my secular life over here as if it was possible to actually separate those things before God. And I'll play both sides of the fence. But when you're playing both sides of the fence, you're actually playing one side of the fence and it is not the side of our king. And so in the end, he had nothing. It was a cloud. And his life's not built on it. How about another example? Just probably just a page to your right. If you turn one more time, go to, go to chapter 26. In chapter 26... He's in court again, and he's in front of a king, Agrippa, and he's in front of a governor named Festus. Best name in the Bible, Festus. I love it. It's fun to say. And it even tells us, actually, at the end of chapter 25, that when Paul goes into this court, this trial, this this opportunity to be heard, that before they bring him in, there's this, like, display of all the powers that be that come in. They bring in all the leaders, all the rulers, even the military rulers of the day. And the Bible says specifically that they bring them in with great pomp. In other words, they make a big show out of this. Like this, they're all dressed in their, their, you know, their service uniforms with all their badges on, like all of this. Like it is the power of that culture. It is the leaders. It is the be all. It is the who's who of that place. And they're all there. And then they call for Paul and they bring Paul in. And he goes through the same thing. And he starts telling the story of his own conversion. How he himself is an eyewitness of Jesus. Yeah, he did get blinded, but let's not talk about that right now. But he was an eyewitness. He was there. He begins to tell him the story of his own conversion, the change that happened in his own life. Going from a person of power just like them. Going from the religious Pharisee who would go into the temple with pomp who would go into the religious ceremonies being celebrated as look at this great, most excellent Paul. Wasn't his name then, but let's not get bogged down with details at the moment. So here he is telling this whole story. And so what's the reaction as this stuff happens? Look what happens. As he was saying these things, well actually verse 22, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. See, he does it again. He's like, this isn't new. This is the truth that has been around from the beginning. He's tying it to the early prophets, Moses, these guys. But what is it that he's saying they were talking about? That Christ must suffer, that by the way, the Christ, which is the king. That the king must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things, speaking about Agrippa. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. I love that. You see what he's saying? He's like, guys, you 
know these things happened. You have knowledge of this. I'm not telling you anything you haven't seen. This wasn't done in a corner. This happened in front of everyone. There's still eyewitnesses alive. The king knows these stories. He has knowledge. But does he know it like a cloud? Or does he know it like a mountain? Well, as you guys, those of you that know the rest of the story, what happens? Paul gets shipped off to Rome. There's a shipwreck, crazy story. Still ends up on trial. And eventually the powers that be would kill Paul. They would murder him because of these beliefs. They knew it. But what he's teaching is a direct threat to their power. And for us, we're like, well, I'm, I'm not a king. I'm not a power that be. Oh, we so are oftentimes the rulers of our own little worlds, aren't we? And when we find out about this other king, and Luke's going to tell us about him, do we know it like a cloud? Or do we know it like a mountain? Do we know it as something that we go, oh, this is, it's part of my life, but, but man, if, if, if my life begins to push against what this stuff teaches, I'm just going to let it push that stuff right on out of the way because I'm, I'm not going to change. I'm a ruler. I want to call my own shots. I want to do my own thing. I am certainly not going to adjust my life because of this stuff. No cloud is going to determine what I do or don't do. Or is this a mountain? Or do you know this is a mountain? Because what Luke wants for us is better than that. And church, we know these stories. We've heard them. Again, if, it's, if you're brand new to this, I'm, ex- I'm jealous in a sense. To hear this stuff for the first time ever, I can't imagine. I, I've been hearing these stories my whole life, and so I forget what it's like to realize that some of these stories are new. I'm jealous of some of that. We know them. How do we know them? How do we know them? This might be a really good time for us as a church, I hope and pray, as we move forward, as we study these kinds of things, because there's a type of knowledge that is dangerous, that makes us think we know enough to be okay, but will never allow us to let that knowledge affect the actual way that we live. And that is not what Luke wants. Luke, even in his life, demonstrated the type of knowledge that says, even as people are dying, I will stand. Because this isn't no cloud, man. This is real. He really lived. He really died. He really rose again. He really ascended into heaven in the clouds. He really is the king. And he really is coming again. And if those things are true, you can go around the mountain all you want, but the mountain's going to stay. You've got to deal with it. And you can either build your life on it or avoid it and pretend that it's not true. But that is dangerous because here's the thing that Luke is definitely going to present as we go through the book of Luke. He is not presenting a kitten. He's presenting a lion. He's the king. He is God in the flesh. He is alive. His spirit is with us now, and he is coming again. I know that, Jeff. I know that, Jeff. How do you know that? Like a cloud? Maybe a thick cloud. Maybe it's getting a little thicker. Maybe, it's a, little, maybe, it's, maybe a better analogy for us is like smoke. <laughs> or like an immovable mountain that you can set your life on because he wants us to have the kind of certainty that leads to security in what we know. 
And by security, he doesn't just mean this light, fluffy, like, I'll be okay. He means we can build our house with security on this mountain. I have an uncle in Tampa right now. Talked to my cousin this morning. They're all bunkered down. They've got shutters on the windows. they got all that kind of stuff. Generators ready to go because there's a storm coming, right? And I'm like, Morris, why in the world are you staying there? Like, Lindsay, your daughter left. Why wouldn't you leave? Get out. And he goes, no, we're actually okay. Our house right now is at 37 feet above sea level. The storm surges are only supposed to get to like 15. So we'll probably be okay. It's going to be a rough storm, but you know, it's Florida life. We just deal with it. Why is he so confident? I hope he's right, by the way. He could turn out to be a fool, just so you know. Hurricanes are terrible if you've ever been through one. But he has a certain amount of confidence knowing that he's built on what maybe Florida would call a mountain. 37 feet, right? But, but there's an analogy in that. Listen, Luke doesn't just want you to know this story. Luke wants you to know that it's so real that you will build your life and bet your life on it. And you can do that with confidence because this isn't some new thing that hasn't been tested. This is part of the ongoing story of redemption that God has been doing from day one as continuing through. It is tried. It is true. We will come and go. More storms will come. If God delays, there may be hundreds of years after this day, but this mountain will always stand because this king lives and he's real. So let's pray and ask God to maybe teach us in a new way. Oh, we may know the stories, But maybe the issue isn't learning something new in the story. Maybe the issue is God wants to point out new things in our own lives that we need to get out of the way because there's a mountain facing us. There's a lion returning, and he's good, and he's the king. Amen? So let's stand and bow our heads and pray to that end. Father, will you move in your church in this next season? As we open this book, as we study these things, Lord, may your spirit teach us and change us and open our eyes to see the immovable and dependable reality of who you are. May we know these things like a mountain, not a cloud. And I pray, God, you would show us, Lord, the areas of our life that we need to deal with because of these truths. I pray, God, that Heritage would be a significantly different church on the outside, on the other side of this. That you would grow us in our faith. That you might give us, Lord, by your spirit for sure, the strength to be able to stand on this. That this story that starts so small, like you might say a mustard seed, becomes a mountain, also in Luke. That you might make that a reality for us, Lord that we would realize that this is what is tried and true, that you are the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the immovable force. You are God, our king, and you invite us to stand on you. So Lord, show us how to do that. And I just pray, God, that you would bless our time, not just as we gather here as a church, but, but individually, Lord, will you move in the lives of everyone here as we work our way through this book. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Hey, you guys, you should be loving on me right now. I went late last service. I'm done early this service. Happy football day. But hey, listen, I do have some homework. So here's the deal. Real quick before you go. The book of Luke, if you just sit down and read it, start to finish, should take about two and a half hours to read. You break that up into 30-minute sections, you got 
Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, whatever the case may be, but your assignment this week, read. Don't stop and chew or dig. Just read the book of Luke this week, and we'll start diving into the narratives next week. Amen? God bless. Go Broncos. Bye.